0: So if you are here last week, you know that uh, Lisa Ingram and I are doing a four-week series on Eucharist in the context of Epiphany, the title being Eucharist as a Way of Revealing Christ the King. And if you'll look at your reading from 1 Corinthians this morning, our focus is going to be on verse 26, where Paul says to the church, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup... You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we want to just spend a few moments this morning wondering together, what does it mean that Eucharist proclaims Jesus' death? Well, we might think, and thoughtful people have thought, that, well, maybe what's referred to here is the words of institution, as we just heard read that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, broke it, took the cup, passed it, that maybe that's what it is that proclaims the Lord's death. Others have thought, and we might think, well, but there's also kind of an embodied enactment of this in the actual breaking of the bread and the pouring of the wine. But I think, especially when we're considering this from the point of view of our formation to Christ, there's something more at work here for us. And I think it's this. The Eucharist reminds us that the death of Jesus is central to Christian spirituality. You know, there's that incredible scene in the book of Revelation. I don't know how long it's been since you read Revelation, but if you just think with me about that scene in chapter 4 and 5 where John is seeing kind of the throne room and and the worship that happens in the throne in chapter 4, and then in chapter 5, there's this really pregnant, like, decisive moment where John sees this scroll that holds uh, God's will for humanity, and it's got seals on it, and he looks around that heavenly scene, and there's no one worthy to take the scroll and to undo the seals. But then, Revelation 5:6, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. This lamb is standing at the center of the throne. And you all remember this moment where John just, it's like inexplainably awesome that this slain lamb is the one who's worthy to take the seals off the scroll and to take into his his hands the unfolding plan of God. Central to the unfolding plan of God is death. Death on a cross. And central then to Christian spirituality as well is something like cross and death. So in, a, in alignment this then with this, central to Paul's thinking, and we see in all of his letters, central to his thinking about Jesus and what it means to follow him then is cross and death. You know, Paul's certainly thinking of Jesus's words, whoever does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And this is then what informs words like these from Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, where he says the message of the cross or the message of death is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Or think of his famous words in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself, here there, death, who gave himself for me. Or his equally famous words in chapter 6, where he says, May I never boast except for in the cross, and here there again, death. May I never boast except for in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So Paul knows that somehow at the center of all this is the death of Jesus. That's the first thing I want you to hold in your mind as we think about this verse. Well, secondly, in addition, uh, throughout Paul's letters, our notions also of mimicking Christ There's a Greek word, mameo, that is frequently found in Paul. And it means to imitate or, or follow an example or to mimic. And so this notion of mimicking Christ means that Christ is a model and that he's the head of this body, and so we're supposed to be following him. And so actually even the first verse of this chapter that we're studying, chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So now you, this becomes really obvious, doesn't it? Central to Christ is death on a cross. He's the slain, the slain lamb who unfolds the sovereign purposes of God from before creation to its fulfillment. And then Paul's saying, well, okay, we're trying to follow that example of Christ, so follow me as I'm trying to follow that. Thus, I think central to Paul's overall theology, but also fundamental to his prescription for what ails the Corinthians, is the proclaiming of Christ's death. So that in Eucharist, what we're doing week in and week out is we're declaring Jesus' death to be our life. So that in weekly Eucharist, we're acknowledging that we were once dead in trespasses and sins, but now we're alive because of the death of Jesus. And for Paul, so again, think of this being the driving paradigm, the driving worldview, the driving perspective of Paul, Paul thinks that this is supposed to change everything within us as persons, you know, heart, soul, mind, will, structure of desires. It's supposed to change all that, but not just that. It's also meant to change our social selves or our social interactions. It's meant to deliver us from the sins that Lisa taught us about last week, the sins of division, the sins of separating, and so for Paul, what he's seeing is rather than divisively segmenting people in ways that insist on one's social standing, Paul envisions a reality of unity that's based in a cruciform life and based in a cruciform community. So again, think of these you know, well-known Pauline passages in both Galatians and Colossians where Paul tries to picture this unity saying, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, for you're all one in Christ. And what Paul is trying to say here to us, I think, is that insisting on these divisions is proof that one is not living a Galatians 2 or Galatians 6 kind of life. What Paul's picturing here is something like this. Look. Look. A scythian. I didn't see that coming, but welcome. Rather than as Lisa taught us last week oh, a scythian in the back room. The xenophobia that we feel all around us in our culture today was not invented by recent election cycles. The lack of xenophilia, the love of the other, Is deeply ancient. Long before modern societies invented nation states, there were tribal issues and ethnic issues. The invention of nation states and borders were a human. Convenience—they were, They were an effort to try to make the world a better place. I don't really have an issue with sort of the history of how nation-states came about. But nation-states and borders and walls and the kinds of things that enforce those boundaries, that's not new to early 21st century political life. Again, Lisa taught us last week, some people were made to go behind a wall. You can't have anything to do with us. You, you know, you do your thing, we do our thing. And so it's impossible to live into this sort of hospitality and welcoming to embrace the other, to have a sort of xenophilia. Like what if we automatically had within us, what if we could come to the place where the automatic space or bent of our heart was a xenophilia rather than the automatic xenophobia that most of us live with? Like, I, I think sometimes we don't even, like, I, I, can hear some of, I can hear some of you thinking, Todd, that's wishful thinking. <laughs> well, maybe, but maybe not, if one is able to live into that sort of notion that I'm crucified to myself. Yeah, I'm an old white guy. I get it. Yeah, that's who I am. But what if it's possible to simultaneously hold particularness in our mind to hold discreteness in our mind. And as an old white guy, love the young Asian, love the elderly Hispanic, love the old black guy who cuts somebody's hair down in Santa Ana. What if it's possible to hold both? It's impossible not to have discreetness. There is male and female. It's just that in Christ, we're all one. Yes, but only if we die to the privileges associated with certain forms of discreteness. This does not mean that we no longer notice differences. This means that in Christ, these differences, as we all lay down our lives, take up our cross, put ourselves to death for the sake of others, this just creates a new reality, but it's not a new reality absent of discreteness or difference. It's one body that includes Jews and Gentiles and slaves and free and women and men and circumcised and uncircumcised and barbarians and Scythians, slaves and free. This is what Paul's envisioning, and he sees it going wrong. And of course, our gospel reading this morning reminds us that proclaiming Jesus's death such that it leads to death to self And transformation of life into self-giving unifying love of others it actually isn't intuitive and nor is it easily pursued if you look at your gospel reading for a moment you see those famous words of jesus i mean sorry of peter to jesus and and we see in peter how non-intuitive this the centrality of death to christian spirituality is where he says be it far from you lord Well, be what far from you death Be it far from this whole narrative of Messiah and what the coming of the Messiah means and how we expected this to be, it cannot be that Messiah and that the fulfillment of the kingdom of God comes through death. This is what Peter's thinking when he says, be it far from you. But apparently in this passage, if if you look below, you see that Jesus says to Peter, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And this is meant to point out that apparently the things of God include death and a call to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and follow Jesus. And it's only people who are denying the power that gives them the privilege to have divisions from others. They're the only ones who live easily into the Pauline and messianic view of, again, think of of the book of Revelation when it's all said and done. Who's around the throne? Every nation, tribe, and tongue. And that's why insisting on these divisions was such a bummer to Paul, to use a modern phrase. I mean, it was like unthinkable to him that the Corinthian church was acting like that. So the deep spiritual wisdom of our gospel reading this morning is that seeking to save one's life, and here again, think of the Corinthian social scene that Lisa described for us last week. Seeking to save that life, to enforce those social divisions, is the path to losing one's life. But losing one's life in the Jesus way and finding real humanness in God's kingdom and doing so for the sake of others, Jesus says that's the path to finding life. I love the way Peterson gets this in the message. He has Jesus saying, self-sacrifice is the way, my way to finding yourself, your true self. And then to think of Jesus's question, is there anything worth trading for, for that sort of life, that sort of humanity, that sort of a self? And the answer, of course, is no, nothing. And it's this that we remind ourselves of every week in Eucharist. Uh, Tom Wright, in his recent book, The Day the Revolution Began, says this of cross and death. He says, the cross, or death, is the mysterious key to the meaning of life, of God, the world, and human destiny. The point of trying to understand the cross better is not so that we can congratulate ourselves for having solved an intellectual crossword puzzle, but so that God's power and wisdom may work in us, through us, and out into the world for the sake of others, into that errant social scene in 1 Corinthians, into the problems of our current social scene. So Eucharist proclaims the death of Jesus. And this is why we say, eat and drink in remembrance that Christ died for you. Eat and drink in remembrance that Christ died. This meal proclaims his death. Christ died, why? For you. Believe in it. See the power in it. Enter it, brace it, carry it, boast in it, proclaim it, testify to it, and love and serve based on it.
1: Each week in our series, we'll spend a little more time meditating on the word that was read to us and spoken to us. So I'd just like to invite you to close your eyes, take a deep breath, and settle into the words of the Lord this morning as I guide us through some prayer in response. Lord Jesus, one of the things I most appreciate about this tradition that we're in, the church calendar, is that we have seasons devoted to remembering your death. In a few weeks, we'll remember your death and your sacrifice through Lent, which, as Todd says, is a central element of our Christian spirituality. Lord, we know that our peace comes from punishment that was placed on you that our salvation and our life comes through your death, that the Eucharist we participate in, Eucharist literally meaning Thanksgiving, that that is due to death. And so, Lord, in this moment, we want to be a little more discerning about ourselves as Paul encouraged us as we approach this meal. And so, Lord, as we think about the ways, like in Corinth, cultural values have entered into our lives and into our space where even Peter's conception of victory and what the Jewish people needed was was more about winning than losing and climbing to the top rather than choosing the bottom, and bigger and better rather than sacrifice. Lord, sometimes these cultural messages, these are really counter to the death to self that is at the heart of our faith. And so we pause in the presence of your loving Spirit to think about the ways we have followed culture more than Christ maybe in seeing difference as something to fear rather than embrace or connecting our value to productivity or comparison of our lives to those around us. Spirit, would you gently highlight something in us that you would want to transform? Would you highlight in us places where self-promotion or self-preservation or Fear of difference rather than humility or dependence has taken root. Lord Jesus, if if our lives as Christians is about death to ourselves, what might need to die in us so that we can truly live in you? And Lord Jesus, what specific thing might you have us bring to our confession later this morning? Lord, thank you that your death brings us life. Amen. Two thoughts as we continue in our service this morning and as I was hearing Todd's words. First is our time of confession always ends with standing and saying to each other, good morning, peace to you. And if if it's true that, as Isaiah said, Christ's punishment is our peace, and if it's true that it's no longer that we who live, but Christ who lives in us, then um, maybe consider allowing that time to have that other person who's speaking to you, who's speaking peace to you, be Christ speaking peace to you. And maybe you also speaking peace to another. You are like Christ speaking peace to that other after this time of confession. And then as we enter into this meal and as we proclaim death in our eating and in our drinking, I think my prayer is that, our, that the Spirit would, would deepen our thanksgiving in that proclamation.